Good morning, folks. <clears throat> My name is Emily, and I'm going to do our Bible reading this morning and just take some time to pray. Send a John there. It's always good when they're standing room only. It was lovely to look back and see, see everybody in. It must be September. <laughs> Everybody's holidays are over. So this morning we are reading from um, Matthew 5. If you'd like to turn in your Bibles to Matthew 5, and we're going to read from verse 21. This is God's word. You have heard that it was said to those of old, you shall not murder, and whoever murders will be liable to judgment. But I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. Whoever insults his brother will be liable to the council, and whoever says you fool will be liable to the hells of fire. So if you are offering your gift at the altar and there, remember that your brother has something against you, leave your gift there before the altar and go. First be reconciled to your brother and then come quickly and offer your gifts. Come to terms quickly with your accuser while you are going with him to court, lest your accuser hand you over to the judge and the judge to the guard and you be put in prison. Truly I say to you, you will never get out until you have paid, paid the last penny. And just take some time to pray. Father, we thank you for being able to gather as your people. Father, we, thank, we are so thankful to you that you are our Father. And Father, you love us like a father, and not just any father. You love us as the perfect father. And it is in that that we come to you as your children. Father, we come <clears throat> acknowledging that we need you, that we are nothing without you. We need your care. We need a rest in your sovereignty. We need to know you. And Father, we pray that you would help us to know you. Help us this morning as we unpack your word to know you more. Help us to know your care. And Father, we just pray this morning for people who are really broken and who are really hurting. Not just, there's some hurt that people just don't even know about. And Father, we pray for their hurting people across this globe. Father, we pray for your church 
in all corners of this land this morning. Father, we pray that you will be glorified from every corner of the earth, that every tribe and tongue and nation would be calling on the name of Jesus. Father, we pray for people who it's not as easy or pleasant as this. Father, we pray for your church this morning who face horrendous persecution, Father, who we just have no idea. But Father, people who will lose their lives this morning to call on your name, to proclaim your name. Father, we pray, Lord, that you would be their ever-present help in time of trouble. That they would know that you are worthy of it all. And Father, I pray for the churches across this town. Father, I pray that as your name is lifted, Father, that people would come to you. Father, we pray for our brothers and sisters in this place and each church that made here this morning. Father, I pray, Lord, that they will just enjoy worshiping you. Father, we pray that together we can lift the name of Jesus in this town. Father, that lives would be changed, that darkness would flee, that people would be brought from death to life. Father, I pray that we would be bold in ensuring you with our neighbors. Father, we pray for the people in this town who are hurting, who are marginalized, who are facing trial that is just horrendous. Father, I pray that you would wake us up to be the answer, that we would declare that Jesus can change our lives. But Father, we need you for that. We need, we need you to open the people in this town's eyes for their need of you. But help us to be ready, ready to love them, ready to disciple them, ready to welcome them into our community. And Father, as we come this morning to unpack your word, I pray that you would that you would, that you would speak truth directly into our lives. Father, I pray that you would give John the words to say, Father, that what he has prepared, that you would take and that you would just, you would use it mightily. Father, we pray for all of the kids' spaces. Father, we pray that as they learn truth of you, that they will run to you. So, Father, we ask you that you would take everything that we do in this building today as an offering of our worship. And, Father, we ask that it, you see it as acceptable. And we celebrate the fact that the only reason it's acceptable is because of Jesus. And that he, done, he did what we could never do. So help us to look on him, to rest in his finished work. And may all the glory be yours. Amen.
Amen. Thanks, Emily. Good morning, everyone. Good morning. Uh, I am, before we start today, just going to do a time check. It is now seven minutes past 11. So, doing that for one simple reason. When the kids' leaders come hunting me, and uh, when you come hunting me, when you look down at your watch and see a quarter two, it's not my fault. All right? Just putting it out there. It's not my fault. We're seven minutes past 11 now before I start. Right, we are back in the, the Sermon on the Mount today, and we are in verse 21. We have covered the Beatitudes, and now we're moving into Jesus' discourse on the Sermon on the Mount. I think I can say fairly, fairly surely that, that it is a tendency, certainly, of some human hearts to want to know where the line is. Where's the line? It is a tendency in some of us, definitely, to want to know where the line is. Some, for some reason, it seems to be in human nature to, to just want to know how far we can push the boundaries without going too far. I know probably my, my heart is a bit like that, uh, and I like, I like boundaries so I know where I can go and I know what I can do. And, and if you tell me to do something, if you tell me to lift that chair from there to there, I'll lift that chair from there to there. And then you need to tell me something else and I'll do that. That's the way I, I'm wired. And I know for some of us, that's the way we're wired. We like to know the boundaries. We like to know where the line is. And what we have uh, in this next section of Matthew 5, uh, the Sermon on the Mount, is what's known as by theologians as the the sixth antithesis. The sixth antithesis. And if, if you have your Bible open in front of you, you'll be able to look through the sections there and you'll be able to see six sections where it says, you have heard it said, but I say to you. You have heard it said, but I say to you. These are the six antithesis. Say that five times. No, uh, sixth antithesis. Antithesis. Sound like Chris Eubank. Right. But what Jesus is going to do in these six statements, in these six outlines, is this. He is going to tell us that He is not just after outward adherence to the law. He's not just after outward adherence to the law, but He is, in fact, after a changed heart. He is after a changed heart. Jesus makes it clear in verses 17 to verse 20, which we have already covered, that the law, the Old Testament law, the Old Testament moral law, is still authoritative in the believer's life. His believers, his, the people of his kingdom, will follow the moral law of the Old Covenant. He says that not one jot or, or one part of the law will be removed until, all things, until heaven and earth pass away, until all things are accomplished. Now, I, it would be very simple to ask you, how has heaven and earth passed away? Have all things been accomplished? The answer to that is clearly no. And so the Old Testament moral law still stands in the believer's life. Jesus is very clear. Now, he says in verse 20 that the standards of the kingdom are much higher than that of the Pharisees. The Pharisees like to the posture. They like to think that they are the ultimate law keepers. 
And we're going to see in this passage and then the passages to follow, but Jesus is very clear that He is the ultimate law keeper, that He is the one who fulfills the law. The law is fulfilled by Him. Sinclair Ferguson has some interesting introductory comments to, to Matthew. He says this, Jesus came to fulfill the law, not to destroy it. In fact, as we have seen, Jesus teaches that the law of God is an essential diagnostic tool. Whether we break it or keep it, and whether we encourage others to break it or keep it, is an indication of our true spiritual condition. It is the standard for evaluation in the kingdom of God. And so what we're going to see next at verse 21 and following, what we're going to see is Jesus outlining these standards of the kingdom that He talks about that are even more extreme than that of the Pharisees. More extreme than that of the Pharisees. Jesus is telling us here in no uncertain terms when it comes to this, this particular passage here in Matthew 5, He's telling us this, that it is possible to murder without knives. It is possible to break the sixth commandment, do not murder, you shall not murder, in more ways than taking a life physically. Murder can be done without a gun, it can be done without a physical weapon at all. Jesus is telling us that there is more to the sixth commandment than simply the unlawful taking of our neighbor's life. And what we need to understand when we, when we think about this passage, when we think about Jesus speaking here, He has two audiences in mind. He has one audience who are on the peripheral, one audience who, are, who is on the outside. That audience is, in fact, the Pharisees and the scribes. They are looking on at Jesus from a distance. They're hearing what He's saying. They're, they're diagnosing what He's saying. They're, they're, they're looking at Him, and, and they think He's a nobody. And they think that He is going to speak against the law. They think He's going to undercut the law of Moses and undercut the moral fiber of Israel, but that's not what He's doing. They think He's going to rise up this revolutionary band who are, uh, have these new ideas and a new way of behaving that is going to undercut the law of Israel. And Jesus wants to make it clear to them that that is not correct. And that their assessment of Him is incorrect, in fact. And so He speaks. He has in mind, when He is speaking, He has in mind this group of self-righteous those who were the, the Pharisees and the Sadducees of the day, and he wants them to understand that he is not undermining the law of God. But then also he has those in front of him directly, your ordinary, everyday person, who thinks they're sinners, who knows they're sinners. So he has these two groups in mind as he says these things. The first thing he says here is this. You have heard it said. That's a really interesting phrase. You have heard it said. What this means and what it suggests is that the multitudes listening to him, for most part, had not studied the law of Moses for themselves. They had not studied the Scriptures. 
they had not read the law. Most likely, they had simply heard it from the Pharisees and the scribes. And what we need to do is just pause there at that and see the problem that Jesus is diagnosing here. And I also think it is one of the most, the biggest issues that the church faces today. Not just our church, but the church globally. That's not just a problem when Jesus walked the earth, it is a problem today. You have heard it said. For whatever reason, the people who were in front of Jesus hadn't read the Scriptures, studied the Scriptures for themselves. There could be multiple reasons, one of which probably was a lack of availability or illiteracy. There could have been any number of reasons the people had not read the Scriptures for themselves. But therefore, they had just believed what they heard. They believed what they heard. Do you see the issue with this? Is this ringing any alarm bells in your mind when these people just believed what they heard? And again, sorry for repeating myself from last week, but this is why it's important, folks, that you have your Bibles open in front of you. So that you do not just believe what I say, but you have your Bible open in front of you. You can look down and you can see this is where this is from. You can see what I'm saying. It's directly linked to the Scriptures. They were simply believing what they were being told. Now, the reality is that they had only a few sources to listen to, in fact. Scribes, Pharisees. Their, their, their sources weren't multiple. There, there weren't many messages coming their way. Now, think about the world we live in today. Instagram Reels, TikTok, Facebook. I learned about three different things this week in that seminar alarm night that I didn't even know existed. Snap face, snap book face, whatever you call it, uh, and what you can do on there. Multiple, multiple short 30-second videos telling you what you should believe. And the reality is, some of us are spending hours per day listening to those. Commenting on the Scriptures. Telling you what they believe about the Scriptures. And do not for one second, folks, think that that's not getting in. Do not think for one second that that is not infiltrating your mind and your heart, and you are actually in danger of just simply believing what you hear. Here's the thing. On an Instagram reel, and I know this, listen, for some of you, you're out at this point. For some of you, this does not affect you. You are thinking at this moment in time, chilling, I have no idea what you're talking about. But it affects quite a lot of us. And here's the thing about simply you have heard it said in a 30-second Instagram reel. Here's the thing. You don't know who they are. 
You don't know the background they have. You don't know the church that they come from. You don't know whose authority they're under. You know nothing about it. And they tell you something and you're like, mm. why do we do that? Well, one, it either fits the narrative that we already have in our heads or it sounds right. There is so much of you are being bombarded with today that sounds right. But when you strip it back and you put it in its scriptural context, it's not right. You have heard it said, please, folks, be careful. And I say it, I'm sick of saying it. I sound like a part, but I do it because I love you and I want to protect you. Be careful what you're listening to. Be careful the sources that you go to, for you have heard it said. Jesus says, but I say to you, the application is simple here. Don't believe everything you hear. Read the Bible for yourself. Read the Scriptures. Get to know the Scriptures. Get to know the context of the Scriptures. Get to be in the Scriptures. If you're going to listen to sermons or read books, for goodness sake, read good ones. Listen to good ones. Like literally, I, I say this regularly. If you want any advice, if you want to know what my, that's only my opinion, but if you want to know my opinion on what is good and what is not, ask. Ask. There's a couple of people who do that regularly. I, it's, it's a pleasure to be like, no, here's why this is good. Here's why that's not good. It's a pleasure because that's what we're supposed to be doing. Ask. There is so much good, solid Bible teaching out there. Please do not sell yourself short by listening to some nonsense that is nothing more than self-help carrying a Bible. There's so much good out there. You have heard it said, and Jesus says, but I say to you, Jesus has just told us that we cannot be saved unless our righteousness exceeds that of the Pharisees. Now, we looked at that a few weeks ago, and we said, okay, we, we know that, that our righteousness in and of ourselves could never exceed that of the Pharisees, and we know that our righteousness comes from Christ and Christ alone. We get that. But Jesus is now going to show us that, that His commands, what He says, actually goes further than the letter of the law to the heart of the issue. The cliche, uh, the heart of the matter is a matter of the heart, really does apply here. And it's a, cliches are cliches for a reason, usually. It's because they're right. And the heart of the matter is a matter of the heart. One commentator puts it like this, Jesus' teaching and His interpretation of the Old Testament transcend the literal demands of the law. He surpassed the law by insisting that one should avoid sinful attitudes as well as sinful actions, showing that the behavior of His followers is to be guided by God's own character rather than his commands. God has in mind more than just prohibiting evil acts, and particularly here, the e evil premeditated act of murder. He is concerned both with murderous acts, but also with murderous attitudes. 
murderous attitudes. And he knows the issue is ultimately one of the heart. And so, in verse 22, he warns us. In verse 22, he warns us about even letting a murderous attitude into our hearts. But I say to you, everyone who is angry with his brother, that's an attitude of the heart. And he knows that, that an attitude of the heart may well lead to an action, but, but we need to start at the heart. And the Bible has quite a lot to say about anger. In both the Old Testament and the New Testament, it's obviously an important subject to God, and therefore it should be a, an important subject to us. Let me just read some quotes from, from Old and New, and you'll see just how, how important this is in the Scriptures. Psalm 37, verse 8, Refrain from anger and turn from wrath. Do not fret. It only leads to evil. Proverbs 14, 29, Whoever is patient has great understanding, but the one who is quick-tempered displays folly. Proverbs 15, 1, A gentle answer turns away wrath, but a harsh word stirs up anger. Proverbs 15, 18, A hot-tempered person person stirs up conflict, but the one who is patient calms a quarrel. Proverbs 22, Do not make friends with a hot-tempered person. Do not associate with the one easily angered. Ecclesiastes 7, verse 9, do not be quickly provoked in your spirit, for anger resides in the lap of fools. We move into the New Testament, Ephesians 4, 26, 27. If you're ang- in your anger, do not sin. Do not let the sun go down while you are still angry, and do not give the devil a foothold. Colossians 3, 8. But now you must also rid yourselves of all such things as these, anger, rage, malice, slander, filthy language, James 1, 19, verse 20, My dear brothers and sisters, everyone should be quick to listen, slow to speak, and slow to become angry, because human anger does not produce the righteousness that God desires. So, the, the Scriptures are, are, are clear on anger. It, it, it is a lot. It says a lot about it. Now, what does Jesus here say about this? Let me read these verses to you. You have heard it said to those of old, you shall not murder, and whoever murders will be liable to judgment. But I say to you, everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. Whoever insults his brother will be liable to the council, and whoever says, you fool, will be liable to hell. Sounds like, they sound like harsh words from Jesus. But let me explain them a little bit. Charles Quarles points out that the severity of the final insult there. It's the use of the Greek moros. In Matthew's gospel, it, it, it is far more severe than… Co- we, we, we read that and we think, right, okay. So, but let me see where it is. Whoever says, you fool, would be loud, or whoever insults, insults his brother… That, that's a bad enough, but, but this, is, this is more than that. The Greek moros, I bet you can't, I bet you can't guess what English word we, we get from that. Moron, all right? Uh, whoever uses this word moron is essentially calling his brother or sister unregenerate, not part of the kingdom. They are, you're basically saying that they are unsaved, consigning them to hell. The word hell here 
is the Greek word for Gehenna. Is the, is the Greek word Gehenna. And this is the first time the word appears actually in the New Testament. And interestingly, when, when, we, when we think about this word and we think about the concept of hell, Jesus talks about hell more than anyone else in the New Testament. You would imagine it would be Paul. But Jesus talks about hell, Gehenna, more than anyone else in the Bible, in fact. In fact, the only other time the word is used is in James. The Greek word Gehenna comes from the Hebrew Gehinnom, Valley of Hinnom. This was a place south of Jerusalem. It became a place south of Jerusalem to burn rubbish and to dispose of corpses. It was a place of unquenchable, unquenchable fire. It's a place in the New Testament that Jesus says only God has the authority to assign someone. So what Jesus is saying here, if you call your brother or sister a fool, if you're angry with them, and you assign them to this place, then you are taking the place of God, and you have no right to do so. You have no right to do so. No doubt Jesus' words here sound extreme. They sound almost over the top for a little bit of anger. But don't let us give in to the temptation to water them down. Jesus meant to shock his listeners into action. He meant to shock their, their dullness. Jesus states things purposefully in extremes to make crystal clear the expectations and the standards of the kingdom of God. And the standards of the kingdom of God far exceed those standards of the Pharisees. And in this, he's, he's saying he's, he's not primarily ex concerned with external acts. He is concerned with our attitudes, our heart he is concerned with the source of those acts. Jesus makes the point again in Mark 7 when He says, what comes, what comes out of a person is what defiles him. What is in the inside that comes out is what defiles him, not what is on the outside. The Pharisees' big thing, the Pharisees and the Sadducees' big thing was make everything look as good as possible. Make it look nice. Make it look as if we'll have it all together. If, as, long as, we, as long as you don't see me sinning, I'm okay. And Jesus is like, no. It's what's inside that matters. It's what's inside that comes out inevitably is what matters. What comes out of a person is what defiles him. For, for from within, out of a, the heart of man comes evil thoughts, Jesus says, sexual, sexual immorality, theft, 
murder, adultery, coveting, wickedness, deceit, sensuality, envy, slander, pride, foolishness. All these, all these evil things come from within, and they are what defiles a person, not what is on the outside. And so then Jesus moves to give two examples. You shall not murder. Whoever commits murder will be liable to judgment. But I say to you, and this is the important part, whoever is angry, that heart attitude with his brother will be liable to judgment. And whoever insults his brother will be liable to the council. And whoever says you fool will be liable to the hell of fire. And then he moves. So, that word so is an important shift. He's, got, he's, he's changing now from, from what he's just said to two examples of what he's just said. And the, the problem with this is because of differing historical contexts, there is not a one-to-one -one parallel example in our day. So we will find this difficult, and we will need to make this as accessible for ourselves as possible. However, there are basic abiding principles that transcend all cultures that are true for every person in every time and every culture. And so Jesus used these two illustrations. The first illustration is this. So if you are offering your gift at the altar, and there remember that your brother has something against you, leave your gift there before the altar, and go first and be reconciled to your brother, and then come and offer your gift. What Jesus is actually saying here, if we take this back to the Old Testament where he's being specific about your gift at the altar, he's actually talking about your financial giving. That's what, that's what Jesus is talking about here in the, in the, in the Old, Old Testament uh, system. Your gift was your giving. And you would come and, and, and you would give your giving on the altar, and then you would go and you would worship. A component of that worship was giving. You place your offering on the altar before the Lord, and, then, and, then, and what Jesus is saying here, but if you do that, right, and your conscience reminds you that your brother has something against you. Now, Let's pause. This is not something unreasonable. It is not some irrational thing, but it is a true and legitimate grievance. A true and legitimate grievance. You have genuinely hurt or wronged a brother or sister. And this is a real problem that needs attention. What does the Lord expect in that situation? Well, 24 provides the answer. Leave your gift there before the altar and go first and be reconciled to your brother and then come and give your gift. We cannot worship with integrity, with a clear conscience, if we do not have right relationships with our brothers and sisters. Let me say that again. We cannot worship God with integrity, without a clear conscience, and right relationships with our brothers and sisters. It is foolishness to even try. Sinclair Ferguson says this, Jesus recognizes that our relationship with God is primary. But we always appear 
before God as those related, rightly or wrongly, to our fellow men. What we are before God involves how we are with those we are, with those we are related to. Carson, Don Carson, is even more direct when he says this. Forget the worship service and be reconciled to your brother or sister and only then worship God. Men love to substitute ceremony for integrity, purity for love, purity and love, but Jesus will have none of it. Forget the worship service and be reconciled to your brother or sister and only then worship God. Men love to substitute ceremony for integrity, purity, and love, but Jesus will have none of it. Let me break that down into our terms. You know that you have annoyed somebody. You know that you have deeply hurt someone. Forget about this. Forget about this. When we're standing and we're worshiping and our hands are in the air and we're singing loud, and we know that we have hurt someone or annoyed someone genuinely. Do you know how far that worship goes? That's sealing. Forget about this. Definitely forget about communion. unless you are reconciled to your brother or sister. And listen, again, I, I find myself up here condemning myself more than I, than I am you, definitely. But I have made mistakes in this. You have made mistakes in this. We all have made mistakes in this. There is grace for those mistakes, no doubt. But sort it out. Sort it out. Jesus introduces a second illustration. Interesting, the word brother here is replaced with the word accuser or adversary. You find yourself at odds with another person. The nature of the disagreement is of such severity that it appears to be heading towards court. This has all the components of a civil case, something Paul addresses in 1 Corinthians 6. Uh, in a manner very much like Jesus does here. Uh, and there is key biblical principles that under, undergird all of this as well. We find that in Romans 12. Basically, this is Romans 12, laid out Jesus as Paul will repeat here what Jesus says here. If possible, on your part, live at peace with everyone. Paul says in Romans 12. John Piper, John Piper makes two really helpful observations here. And I need you to listen to these because I need to be crystal clear on these things. And, and, and these are really, really helpful. 
So if you're sitting here this morning and you're thinking, oh, am I guilty of this? Am I, am I, am I in danger of this? Am I, uh, you know, what's going on here? Piper says this. We are only responsible for what others hold against us when it is owning to real sin and blundering on our part. So you're not responsible for, say, another person's perception of you when you've done nothing wrong. You're, you're not responsible for that. You are only responsible for genuine hurt that you have caused, real sin. The second thing, we are responsible to pursue reconciliation, but live with the pain if it does not succeed. We are responsible to pursue reconciliation, but live with the pain if it does not succeed. In other words, we are not responsible, responsible and cannot hold the responsibility to make reconciliation happen. Reconciliation takes two parties. We can only do our part, and if it does not work, we live with the pain. Right, let me get real practical for us. I'm going to quote the Bible. Real practical. Matthew 18. A passage that everyone knows, but no one likes to do. I love the... Oh, that is music to my ears. Do you see that there? Oh, the glory of the Lord has descended upon us. Bible's turning. Page is turning. Love it. Oh, it's good. Matthew 18, verse 15 to 17. If I, if I was to, if I could get it, like, if I, I think this would be a theme verse for Cornerstone, a theme verses, all right? It would, it, would, it would save me a lot of hassle, all right? I'm just saying, if we did these verses, that would be great, right? If I did these verses, it would be great. Right, let me read them. If your brother sins against you, what should you do? Go and tell him. Not come to me. We parenthesis should be in brackets there. Don't go to John. <laughs> if your brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. If he listens to you, you have gained a brother. But if he does not listen, take one or two others along with you that every charge may be established by the evidence of two or three witnesses. Very, very important. How many, right, parenthesis. How many times have you listened to someone slag someone off and took it as gospel without knowing any of the other facts? The Bible says we're not to do that. If he listens to you, if you gain a brother, but do not listen. Take one or two others along with you that every charge may be established by the evidence of two or three witnesses. And if he refuses to listen to them, tell it to the church. And if he refuses to listen even to the church, let him, to be, let him be to you as a Gentile and tax collector. 
Who said that? Who said that? Jesus. Jesus says, if if your brother sins against you, go and tell him. If he doesn't listen, take two or three. If he doesn't listen to that, tell it to the church. If he doesn't listen to that, he's out. Now, that's just the Bible. If your brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault. Please, for the love of all the things, stop going and telling everyone else before you tell him. Go directly. Jesus says here, if you're angry, go directly. Sort it out quickly. Cut it before it gets too far. Folks, as I finish, Jesus didn't go to the cross so that we could try harder to change our outward behavior. Jesus didn't go to the cross so that we could change our outward, try really hard to change our outward behavior. He went to the cross and died to redeem us from our sin and give us new hearts and new life that would honor Him. An inward change an inward heart change will be demonstrated by the way we behave by all means. But the good news of the gospel is not that we get to try hard. The good news of the gospel is that we get new hearts, new life. A new heart, Lord, create in me a heart from sin and guilt set free. O close the gate and guard the door that sin may enter in no more. To you, my soul, I open wide. Come, Jesus, and in me abide. And from the temple of my heart, make all unrighteousness depart. O let your Holy Spirit's light with all your heavenly radiance bright flow through my spirit like a flood, eternal source of every good. Thus to my cleansed and contrite heart your heavenly riches, Lord, impart so that your wisdom, truth, and grace may make my heart a fruitful place. Folks, above all, the gospel changes our hearts. Not primarily our outward acts. You have heard said, you shall not murder. I say to you, everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. It really is that the heart of the matter is a matter of the heart. Let me pray for us.
Father, we thank you for the gospel. And we thank you for the grace that there is in the gospel for the many, many mistakes that we've made. And Father, we no doubt have made many, many mistakes when it comes to being angry with our brothers and sisters and not dealing with it in their correct way. And so, Father, we ask for your forgiveness. We ask for repentant hearts. We pray that your Spirit would give us repentant hearts to come again to Jesus, to repent, to ask for forgiveness, and then to go and make amends. Holy Spirit, bring to mind, bring to our hearts those who we have truly hurt and help us. Give us the boldness and give us the grace to go. Help us to demonstrate the gospel in these things. Thank you for your grace. We do not deserve it. And yet you lavish it on us in abundance. We love you and we thank you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.